This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network African American Studies channel. I'm your host, Mikhail Carter. Today, I will speak with Dr. Treva Lindsay about her latest book, America Goddamn, Violence, Black Women, and the Struggle for Justice, published by the University of California Press. Dr. Lindsay, it is great to have you on the channel. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Um, So America Goddamn is a very insightful, powerful, and also a very timely book. So could you talk about what inspired you to write this book? You know, what's so interesting is that I think I kind of ran from this book for a while, which might sound a little strange for an author to say, but because of the heaviness, because of the relentlessness of violence against Black women and girls, there was a way that the book kind of angled into my life. So I'd been writing about violence against Black women and girls for years. Even in my first book, I'm looking at the way that we think about anti-Black violence and how we have sometimes a very narrow focus on cisgender Black men and boys as the exemplars of the ways that anti-Black violence manifests historically and contemporarily. And also, I was writing more for a publicly kind of engaged audience, a broader audience, and I was still trying to connect to my roots as a historian that looks at the question of how we contextualize this relentlessness, this seeming ubiquity of uh, violence against Black women and girls. And suddenly it felt like I had to write this book. And then we were on lockdown, all right? What is termed as lockdown, I'm not sure we were ever fully locked down in any real way, but we were inside. A lot of us were inside. And amidst that is the uprisings of 2020 and specifically the impact for me of the killing of Breonna Taylor and watching the world respond to that. And then a couple of personal instances, one of which I detail in the book about coming across a particular instance of patriarchal violence between a couple that really anchored me and said, you know what? It's time to write this book. You've been amassing this archive. You've been doing these smaller pieces about it. Now is the time to bring the personal 
the historical and the political and cultural and social analysis into one place. And that's how America Goddamn came into existence. Thank you. And so we kind of talked about this a little bit earlier. Um, as far as the book with you um, utilizing personal incidents, but then also just also like just these different stories um, of violence enacted by uh, black women, um, girls, transgender women that they have to face. Um, it was a definitely a heavy read, a powerful book, of course, and very insightful, but it was extremely a heavy read. And so could you speak about your experience um, as far as writing this book? Yes, it was a challenging book to write. And I think any author will tell you, or most authors will tell you that writing a book is quite challenging. But with this book, I I say the intention is to bear witness and witness. And so witnessing is how I thought about talking about bringing to life some of these awful and horrific stories, these spectacular stories that show actually the mundaneness and the everydayness of violence against Black women and girls. But the witness part for me was, what does it mean to write from among Black girls and women? What does it mean to write as a survivor into this story, into this history, into this still unfolding history of violence against Black women and girls, which meant that I had to handle myself warmly while writing this and commit to an ethic of care in the way that I both researched and wrote this book. And so that to me was a call from my Black feminist foremothers like Ntozake Shange, who asked us to sing a Black girl song and to handle her warmly. And so I had to imbibe that as a way to push through such a dense archive of violence and harm and violation and denigration and devaluation while also holding the lives of these individuals in real ways as though they're my loved one. Um, I didn't want to just write about objects of study, which is often what we do, but to really have a life-affirming approach to these death-dealing structures. And so the book took a lot out of me emotionally as was exhausting, if I'm um, completely honest. And yet I think with that exhaustion came a way to be life affirming in telling these stories, these experiences, and being unrelenting in my critique, in my disgust, in my anger at these systems that create these conditions of unlivable living and ubiquitous violence. Thank you for that. And so speaking of unlivable living, um, So in your book, throughout your book, you pretty much demonstrate how black women and girls experience multiple jeopardy, um, such as being affected by both violence and unlivable living, like you mentioned. Could you talk to us about this? So what is multiple jeopardy and what is unlivable living? Yes. So I had the distinct pleasure in graduate school of really getting to study different ways of thinking about systems of oppression and how they work together, how they're interconnected. Many of us are familiar with intersectionality, although I would say it's probably one of the most misappropriated and misused terms um, in, in a broader parlance that's moved from the academy to a broader audience. And even within the academy, I see it misused quite often. And absolutely, my work takes an intersectional approach and is indebted to folks like Kimberly Crenshaw and thinking through violence against Black women and girls. I mean, it's of note that 
intersectionality, its first iteration in critical legal studies, is a way to think about how the criminal punishment system is responding to violence against women of color. So multiple jeopardy, a, a term coined by Deborah King that is indebted to other iterations of this double jeopardy um, from Francis Veal, thinking about being a colored young woman in the 1800s. There are multiple ways that Black women have always been attentive to the ways that racism, sexism, ableism, homophobia, transphobia, imperialism, capitalism are all working together to create this kind of interdependent superstructure that impacts the lives and livelihoods of marginalized people. And for the work that I was doing, I wanted to specifically look at the impact of that on Black women and girls. And multiple jeopardy was attending to the ways that these multiplicative oppressions are working together in the lives of Black women. So it's not singularly anti-Blackness or anti-Black racism or singularly patriarchy or misogyny, it's how these things work together and operate together to create death-dealing circumstances or unlivable living. So we think about the things that Black women and girls are made to endure on a regular basis that they somehow persevere through, but are by no means what we would construe as livable or healthy or life-affirming. And so I kind of want to backtrack just a little bit. And so um, America Goddamn, the title, I really want you to speak um, about this title. How did you go about choosing it, um, your inspiration, and then also just like, yeah, your thought process going through this? Sure. So initially, the book was actually called Here Are Screams, Violence, Black Women, and the Struggle for Justice. And I was thinking about both the screams that we let out when we're harmed, but also our screams of resistance and the rage, right? That is the righteous rage, the eloquent rage, to quote Brittany Cooper, um, that we have in response to these death-dealing systems. But Nina came to me, as Nina Simone often does, and my North Carolinian system, my family is from North Carolina. And I knew that this book was my form of protest. It was a way that I was entering into this long tradition of using our voices, using our pens, our words to be a weapon in the struggle for justice. And Mississippi Goddamn, Nina Simone, uh, by Nina Simone, was her first song that we tend to categorize as a protest song. And I, it was of note because I think we remember her career in a way that it would suggest that she was always doing this kind of music. But initially, she's very skeptical of the ability of a song to convey the weight of anti-Black violence, of anti-Black racism, of Jim Crow reality. She's very skeptical. But two incidents in particular propel her to quite write and perform this song. The first being the assassination of civil rights activist Medgar Evers in Mississippi. The other being the 16th Street, 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, then informally known as Birmingham, Alabama, that killed the four little girls, or at least that's how history tends to remember them. We rarely say their names, right? Addie, Carol, Cynthia, and Denise. And there's also Sarah, um, who is severely injured, but is not killed um, in this bombing. And the rest of the community that's impacted, like 16, uh, over a dozen people were injured as a result of this bombing. 
And so it was fascinating to me that these four little girls who were brownies and loved math and singing and in choir and were just there in preparation for the Sunday service were snuffed out. And that is one of the propelling forces for Simone to do this song, to perform this song. But it was also instructive for me because we don't often say their names. And so for me, that connected to the 2015 report and movement around Say Her Name and to enliven that in particular ways. It's not just naming them, but understanding who they were, who they were to the communities that they belonged to, to the loved ones that still grieve their tragic loss and what it means for me to write a book where I'm naming these violences, as well as the people who are disparately impacted by them in significant ways. So so America Goddamn became a framework that was a nod to Nina, but is also deeply indebted to the analytical framework that she offers with this song and with the intention um, and the emotionality that is behind this song that I similarly wanted to mirror with this book. Right. And I think that was a um, strong point, like as far as like reading the book. Um, I don't think that we yeah, we often do not uh, think of like um, Nina Simone's song being inspired by that, that bombing and then also um, not saying those individuals names or knowing those individuals names. But we know, um, you know, these other accounts as far as, you know, black men and so on. Um, and so that was very, very important. And so I noticed that you, um, chapter one, you dedicated a whole chapter to it, entitled Say Her Name. Um, and so if you could speak to us, um, provide readers just, you know, some of those stories of these individuals um, who have been harmed by police. And so this chapter kind of reveals that um, protecting and serving that doesn't often, you know, of course, um, extend to Black communities, Black women. And so could you talk to us about like this, the legacies of policing in America and the criminal punishment system? Yes. So Say Her Name was such a critical moment for me in 2015. That's also around when I started writing more publicly in venues like Cosmopolitan and Complex and about what was happening, what I was noticing, even within movements where you had a large number of Black women and girls and gender expansive people as the activists, organizers, speakers, et cetera, there still seemed to be this kind of ahistorical focus that only honed in on cisgender Black men and boys, which is in no way, I say this very clearly in the beginning, this is not an oppression Olympics, this is not to displace, but rather to be specific and to really get at the root of why we don't talk about Black women and girls um, as victims of violence in the same ways that we talk about cisgender men and boys. And in Say Her Name, you know, there's incredible work by folks like Andrea Ritchie, Beth Ritchie, Emily Thuma, Kimberly Crenshaw, Moni Morris, that are really detailing policing with Black girls and women. One of the things I wanted to do here was give us some historical context to the ways that Black women are policed from the slave ship to the present to really put this into a longer carceral history, but also specifically thinking about the ways that Black women encounter policing. And so much of that happens in our homes, in the private sphere. So there's often no video. There's no record other than the written testimony of police. And we know um, 
how off that often is, how um, how frequently that the report of police, we could look at more recently the report of George Floyd's, what the written report is, and then what the video 17-year-old Black girl, Darnella Frazier, took that blatantly countered that. So when we don't have that in these home scenarios, like a Breonna Taylor, like a Ayanna Stanley Jones, who's sleeping on her grandmother's couch in Michigan in 2010, when police, including an A&E TV crew, are with them to raid and wrongly raid her home, she ends up dead on her grandmother's couch. Or if we think about even the history of how we get the language, the passive and infuriating language of officer-involved shooting, which in no way tells you how the officer was involved. It is so passive. It denies the personhood of the victim. Is We can see the history of the popularization of that term from the killing of Eula Love in Los Angeles in the late 1970s. And she's killed in the in the a precipitating events were an unpaid gas bill um, that led to her death, and so you see this time and time again. So I wanted to think about the home alongside folks like Shatima Threadcraft um, and Joy James, who see when it happens in these non spectacular sites, the home being a non spectacular site. There's a way that that doesn't get us to galvanize and rally in the same way that we do when we see these occurrences on the street. We also don't often talk about police sexual misconduct, although that is the second most reported form of police violence. And that's just reported. Um, Much like sexual violence in the broader population, I'm sure that's underreported and that people fear that. And even by police officers' own admission, it's probably underreported institutionally and systemically. And so I also wanted to point out non-fatal police violence to highlight the injurious ways that have lifelong effects and death-dealing effects on the lives of Black women and girls um, because of the way that policing is set up, which bleeds into the criminal punishment system and how Black women and girls then encounter the criminal punishment system once they're in the custody of the state. What are the politics of disposability? So sadly, if we look at this archive of Black life in the United States, it is one of immense disposability and one of exploitative and extractive possibility. So if we link that to slavery, for example. So most people say it doesn't make sense that they would dispose of people or get rid of people or treat them terribly because we need them to be an easily exploited workforce when they arrive on the shores or born into chattel slavery. When in reality, the sheer number of people who are being exported, the sheer number and scale which I think we grossly underestimate of what the transatlantic slave trade and subsequently the reproductive labor of Black women and girls produce in terms of slavery in the Americas broadly, but in, in the book specifically focusing on the United States, means that each person is not even viewed as a person. They're viewed in the terms of how much can they make us, how valuable are they, to this extractive system in which we don't have to acknowledge any form of personhood being assigned to Black people and Black life. And consequently, that makes us disposable 
in the logics of white supremacy, in the logics of capitalism, in the logics of massage noir, um, and that being a specific racist form of misogyny that is uniquely um, experienced by Black women and girls and feminine identified gender expansive people. So it is quite telling for me to say disposable and, you know, I don't ever want to feel like people are thrown away, right? We take that literally, that these are communities, individuals that are racialized communities that are thrown away, whether that be violently or through the specter and harm of poverty and exploitation or through the rhetoric we use to talk about Black women and girls that is so casually thrown about but has these deeply hurtful and impactful consequences that happens that tells us that we are valued less by these systems. And so can you discuss intercommunal violence and the victimization of Black women and girls, but then also um, the conflicting nature of protecting those who harm us? So that particular chapter was by far the hardest to write because of a number of things. One, because most of the violence that I've experienced in my life was actually at the hands of someone who I was in community with, um, broadly construed, whether that be in my neighborhood or someone I think of in the broader context of the racial communities of Black people. And that was really hard to contend with, not because I had concluded because of that, that Black people were more violent or more harmful, but simply that the ways that harm often happens are in more intimate contexts. Most violence happens intercommunally. And as a result of redlining, segregation, (laughs) policies, um, anti-Blackness, communities in our country are very segregated. So you are more likely to be harmed by someone who looks like you, who's in proximity to you than anyone else. So that was the first thing. Pointing that out, dispelling the myth of Black on Black crime to really just talk about how most violence happens in community. But I know the stakes are higher for us. And with existing criminalizing and pathologizing narratives about Black people and Black communities, I was so concerned that the data of the chapter would be extracted without any of the contextualization, without any of the deeper analysis of why we see this propensity for violence, right? So for me, that meant being very transparent about the anxiety and nervousness that I felt as I dug into these statistics. But those stories had to be told that we can't have the numbers we're having and pretend like they don't exist. That's unfair and unjust to us. So I had to be honest that at the time, 2020 was the deadliest year on record for Black trans women. When I first started writing the book, a Black woman or girl was being killed once every 17 hours. As of 2022, that has escalated to four Black women and girls being killed every day. Um, And these are primarily happening within our communities. And so the intracommunal violence part was how do we talk about patriarchal violence and the role of patriarchy as a weapon of anti-Blackness and anti-Blackness being a weapon for patriarchy and trying to 
point that out through examining these multi, multi-sided forms of violence, domestic violence, whether that be an intimate partner or the father of someone harming their children and their children's partner because they're lesbians or he thinks they're lesbians or whatever it may be, or thinking about how many Black trans women have been killed um, in the 21st century. The numbers are alarming. They comprise the largest number of any population, um, racialized or gendered, that are killed um, uh, by trans, uh, by primarily cisgender Black men and boys. And so doing that meant having to identify who's perpetrating this, but more than that, identify the why, which is what I'm always more interested in. What is structurally happening? What is systemically happening? What is institutionally happening that we have these deeply demoralizing data points about harm against Black women and girls that is happening within community? And boy, did that take a lot out of me because I was so worried about my words being weaponized against Black communities and compounding an already existing criminalizing narrative about our communities, which I'm never invested in replicating, adding to, or holding up as any kind of truth. What is happening is a result of white supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism, colluding, and working in the lives of Black people broadly that then we see meted out in these very specific and horrific incidents of, excuse me, incidents of intracommunal violence. Thank you. And so could you talk to us about, um, about our, our, with our audience, um, about what is medical misogynoir and um, how are Black women affected by anti-Blackness found in healthcare? Well, how are we not is really um, more of the question. And I, as, as comprehensive as I think my dive is into that work, I'm so looking forward to the work of people like uh, Dr. Uche Blackstock that's forthcoming and thinking about health and Black women and the long history of the medical industrial complexes, very fraught and death-dealing relationships to Black women and girls. But I once again went to the archives, and this is where being a historian was so helpful in writing this book because what I was able to see and illuminated by the work of people like Deidre Cooper Owens and Harriet Washington and Dorothy Roberts was that there is this incredibly long history of experimentation and exploitation of Black women and girls. And the knowledge and logic that undergirds that still exists to this day, even with people actively combating racist, sexist, um, massage noiristic stereotypes about Black women and girls and feminine identified people, we still see the resonance of that, the afterlives of those systems. And so I thought acutely about this because we were in a pandemic as I was finishing this book, that so many people, and I talked to so many Black people in my life who initially were so skeptical of the vaccine, right? That, that That's a one really prominent example that comes to mind. And a lot of people cited the Tuskegee syphilis experiment as the reason why. Look, they've experimented on us. Look at this history. Medicine is racist, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, all of those things hold true. But it's interesting that that singularly becomes the example 
without thinking about the work of J. Marion Sams, who advanced the field of gynecology through experimenting on enslaved Black women. It doesn't tell us about plantation doctors who also experimented on and violated and harmed Black people broadly, but specifically Black women and girls, and wrote in medical journals about what happened to us going through these dangerous, dangerous experiments to advance medicine that would benefit um, largely white communities. Additionally, we have to think about a story like Henrietta Lacks as one of medical exploitation. We are still benefiting from her cells to this day. And yes, there are ethical considerations that we absolutely can wrestle with, but the sheer lack of care that she received when she sought care and that that has led to these medical breakthroughs without so much as a nod to the ways that that is ingrained in a larger history of that form of exploitation. So it shows up in Black women not being believed when they go to doctors and saying they're in pain or feeling not like themselves. It means that even someone like Serena Williams, one of the most famous Black women on the planet, um, can almost die giving birth because she's not being listened to, even though she is aware of what is happening in her body. So if she's experiencing that, imagine what poor Black women are experiencing or the long history of forced sterilizations that Black women have endured, specifically um, in places like Puerto Rico, where a third of the women on the island were forcibly sterilized in the mid-20th century. These are not distant histories. And so the skepticism, the fear that often Black women and girls have with regards to medicine and the healthcare system is quite well earned <laughs> because of this long and inglorious history. So it shows up everywhere from overrepresentation and deaths from breast cancer to hyperrepresentation and autoimmune disorders to reproductive justice, everything from forced sterilizations to um, not having the kind of access they would need to other forms of reproductive care, including abortion. So the range of ways that that impacts us is seemingly infinite and a call for us to do so much better um, by Black women and girls in these systems and upending systems that are rooted in the midst of Black people not feeling pain, of women being hysterical and hypochondriacs with regards to what's happening in their bodies, and the ways that the gender binary traps us in. Because what that means for non-binary and gender expansive people is that often very few healthcare practitioners are equipped to actually grapple with their healthcare concerns and communities who fall outside of that binary, that the binary itself becomes violent and exclusionary in that context. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. And so um, your book, America Goddamn, it pretty much um, shows us or talks about the ways in which uh, black women and girls are often demonized, sexualized, um, or even thought of as like these societal caretakers. Um, 
And so could you discuss these stereotypes and the normalization of violence against Black women? Yeah. So I wanted to do something with language, but wasn't quite sure how I wanted to do it when I wrote this book. And this was actually a really great conversation with my editor about how I might think about this. And she knew as I was writing this, I talked about my experience as a survivor of sexual violence. And, you know, she was curious in our conversations that built through, you know, months of trust as we built this of, you know, what were some of the things that kept you from coming forward or talking to people about your experiences with sexual violence. And one of them was this idea of the fast tail girl, that this long history of the Jezebel, the, the stereotype of Black women as hypersexual, libidinous, um, uncontrollable with sexual appetite and unrapeable. Definitely, I had internalized that in ways I didn't fully realize until much later in life that hearing those narratives, watching people, even people I love, do a particular form of victim blaming that was rooted in these harmful racist and sexist stereotypes, many of which evolve as a result of slavery and the immediate post-slavery moment to maintain the racial status quo of white supremacy and patriarchy meant that you have these stereotypes like the Jezebel, like the Mammy, the tropes, right, that Patricia Hill Collins identifies. But I wanted to enliven that with the ways that that shows up in more contemporary context. So it's the Jezebel, but it's also the fast tail girl. That's one of those things. Oh, she fast. I heard that a lot in discussions about the victims of R. Kelly for example, as a way to think through that. Um, I looked at the term opioid patients, which is what we now call people who are living with addiction to opioids. And patient was so, it, it, it was so interesting to hear that word used to describe someone living with drug addiction. And mind you, I think it's an accurate term to think about that. But we were crack whores. We were junkies. We were crack babies. And that warranted a particular kind of analysis to say how much that language mattered because that is criminalizing language, that is denigrating language, that is devaluing. Patient carries a very different weight. And even though we are not treated the same as patients, as our white counterparts, it does offer something other than this criminalizing impulse that those other terms do. So I wanted to think through the words that help create a climate of criminalization that feed into the criminal punishment system that have these historical roots, while also looking at the ones that are supposed to make us feel good, right? Or supposed to be complimentary, that looking at the Black women save democracy or Black women do this, that, and the third and get you a Black woman and listen to and all of these platitudes that are very empty without a real care practice and without a real reckoning with the systems that make us have to show up in certain ways to save our own lives, to save our own communities, to save our own families. And so I, I wanted to dispel that and many have a thing about the strong Black woman, whether it's Michelle Wallace or recently Melissa Harris Perry, that it's that. And that reaches into a history of something like a Nanny Helen Burroughs using the model, we specialize in the wholly impossible. 
that that becomes the expectation for Black women to save and to be the mules of the earth. And what that does to us internally and physically, like literally to our health, but also to the unreasonable expectations that puts on us that impacts then how we can move through the world. It impacts us as we think about our own freedom dreams, that it is so tethered to these ideas about who we should be and how we should show up in the world. And so could you discuss, so how does the attacks on, um, the recent attacks on women's reproductive rights, and then also the Buffalo mass shooting, how does these um, incidents relate to a lot of the stories and themes that we see in America, goddamn? Yeah. Um, You know, the reproductive rights conversation is such a fascinating one for me because Black women, Black birthing people have been on the front lines of this since been since. And if we had actually been listening to them, we would have known 50 years ago that Roe was not going to be enough for people trying to impact and limit our reproductive and bodily autonomy because we were creating um, abortion patients and processes for um, abortion from our slave ships to the present that we've always had to create ways to control our reproductive lives because so much of that has been extracted and exploited. And we also have to think differently about what it means to bring life into this world. What is the world that we're bringing life into? An anti-Black one, a misogynistic one, a patriarchal one, a homophobic one, an ableist one, a capitalist one, an exploitative one, an imperialist one. There are a lot of things that you're being asked to bring life into that I think a lot of Black women and girls and Black birthing people will be quite skeptical of um, and, and thinking about that. And so reproductive rights isn't just about forced pregnancy and forced birthing um, and railing against that, but what it means to reckon with a society that is continuously showing itself to be inhospitable for Black life and Black people. And so I think people have to take that into consideration, both the long history of Black women and Black girls and Black birthing people accessing abortion rights and abortion care and what it means to think about reproductive autonomy in an anti-Black world, in a misogynoiristic world, in an extractive world, in a violent world. And that violent world is marked by incidents like the mass murder at Tops in Buffalo, New York. And that particular mass shooting, because there have been so many since then, um, including, of course, Uvalde, of, you know, there was a woman who had my grandmother's name who was killed, right, at a, on a Sunday in the grocery store. I, I, I knew why she was, she was getting ready for Sunday dinner or picking something up real quick that was coming in uh, to, to probably feed a family, to feed a community. I just, I knew those stories as more details came out about the people who were gunned down. Um, And because it's a mass shooting, there's a way that we can gravitate towards that and rally around it because of how egregious at this scale it is. Um, However, it is notable to me that it is singularly kind of this mass murder, this extra spectacular form of violence that does get this kind of attention and not 
these daily day, excuse me, day to day instances in which we see black women's lives being snuffed out, older black women's lives being snuffed out. You know, when we look at the recent archive of police violence, one of the oldest, if not the oldest victim that we know of is 92, Pearly Golden, a 92 year old black woman killed by police. Right. So when we look at this incredible history and this robust, devastating archive, um, we have to put tops and buffalo into that archive of the ways that Black women are disparately impacted. Because who's most likely to be shopping on a Sunday in a Black grocery store, in a Black neighborhood, in a food desert where that's the only major grocery store serving that community that's in relative proximity for them? Um, Those are compounding things. And I think we have to think about what it means for Black people who are encountering white supremacy on a day-to-day basis, and as well as these spectacular incidents that unveil what we've known has been there the entire time. This killing was, this mass murder was horrific, but it is not surprising. It is not un-American. It is decidedly quite American that a killing like that happens and that we will largely be moved on from it within the next week or two if we haven't technically kind of moved on from it in this moment right now. And so how do we reckon with this history of violence and continued violence against Black women? So where do we go from here? Mm. You know, I end the book, um, there's kind of two endings to the book. There's a conclusion and then I, I did a love letter to Micaiah Bryan as an epilogue. Um, but in the conclusion, one of the things I wanted to do, and I try to put this out throughout the book of moments of activism and resistance that are happening, but that last chapter for me is really indebted to a tradition that is grounded in hope and faith and love, which for many, I know a lot of Christians are like, oh, I get what you're saying, but I mean this in this kind of radical praxis, which that can be from a, a theological, Black radical theological position. But love is an accountability practice, the ways that we love and care for one another, the faith that I have in the ability for otherwise possible, that what we're seeing right now does not have to be where it is. In fact, I believe it can be something else. And my hope is anchored in the fact that people are fighting, people are resisting, people are active and engaged and doing the really hard work of organizing, creating, loving, making family, making kinship networks, making community in spite of these things warring against our humanity, that we are actively practicing freedom in a context of unfreedom. That gives me hope that I remain disciplined within that, that I remain anchored within that kind of hope. And so in the conclusion, I give a very long list of a number of organizations, which is fairly comprehensive, but again, by no means exhaustive of organizations doing that kind of work. I want people to support that work, to listen to those who are already engaged with that work. I know there's often this impulse to want to start something when you hear that there's a problem and you want to get involved. And that's great. I want people to get involved. But there are already organizations led by Black women, girls, and gender expansive folks who are doing incredible work who need your support right now. 
who you can learn from and more importantly, unlearn from um, when you engage them, when you do this work. And so I want us to be hopeful because we've been in other conditions of unfreedom and found new paths towards freedom and justice before. And I believe in the fundamental possibility of Black women's capacity to build new worlds. Um, that is what gives me some kind of drive to make it to the next moment and to continue fighting because we have had victories, even when they're ephemeral, even when they feel too short-lived. We have persevered and created opportunities for other worlds to come into existence. And so I think we just have to keep coalescing and keep anchored in the struggle for justice, even while we rest and pull back and care for one another and care for ourselves, that we can win this fight. It may not be my generation. It may not be the subsequent generation. It may not be two, three generations, but that means we're doing ancestral work that we are going to be someone's ancestors and what kind of body of work do we want to leave behind that establishes a future and looks into the future in a caring practice way that the future is with us right now. So how do we care into that future? So Dr. Lindsay, what do you want readers to gain from this book? So after reading, what do you want them to gain? I want them to Fully get when I say America, goddamn, as Nina would say, and I mean it, (laughs) and I mean every word of it, that there are so many ways that various systems are colluding and acting upon the lives and livelihoods of Black women and girls. So I want people to walk away with an acute sense of this being a crisis, this being an emergency and something that warrants our attention right now. And will warrant our attention, our sustained attention for years and years to come. I also want them to walk away with that list of organizations, with that hope, with a sense of there is a collective push that that framing of no one cares about black girls, which I get why people say that erases how black girls care about other black girls, how black women care about other black women. And we aren't no one. We are not nobody. And so I want folks to see there are already people invested in this work. Won't you join us? Won't you commit to handling black girls more warmly? Won't you also sing a black girl song? And in doing so, that you deepen your commitment to justice and equity and freedom. It, it, harkens back to the Kambahi phrase, right? If Black women get free, we all get free. That if we have to undo all the systems of oppression that are operating in Black women and girls' lives, that will require a whole lot of systemic upheaval that would benefit so many communities, marginalized communities. And so struggle with us because you care about us and struggle with us because in caring about us, you more deeply care for yourselves and your communities as well. Dr. Lindsay, again, this was such, um, this is a powerful book. Um, It's definitely heavy topic, but it's so, so, so important. Um, And so you're doing such amazing work and I thank you for that. Um, And so we're down to our very last question. Could you tell the audience what you have in store for us next, what you're working on? Yes. So it's more project than than book, but it is research oriented. So there are kind of two things I'm working on a um, 
what is called Transformative Black Feminist Feminisms Initiatives, which is a partnership between Ohio State and Zora's House here in Columbus, which is a women of color centered space, community space in Columbus, where we've been running Black Feminist Night School, which is a open, virtual, free night school that looks at issues of Black feminism, Black women, Black girls, but makes it so accessible and enjoyable and fun for folks. So we're looking to kind of re-up that. We're also creating a mobile open access library of Black feminist resources um, that would be available again to all. To all. Um, and so that work that ultimately will culminate in a couple of institutes that are specifically looking at um, queer and trans Black feminisms and the practice of abolition within feminisms, how we learn and understand the long history of abolition among Black women and girls. The other project is uh, still very, 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 very early in development, but a web series called Words Mean Things. And this will be an opportunity for me to converse with different experts in different fields about words that are in the public domain, but that are often misused as we're talking about social justice and equity and freedom. So earlier we mentioned intersectionality as a term that's often misused. What does it mean to sit down and provide this kind of 10, 15 minute discussion about what this term means, why it's important, why we need these terms. And so a bunch of different terms that I've seen come up in these conversations, whether on Twitter or social media or at conferences or just at dinner or kicking it with folks to really add some substance, but substance in a way that makes it really accessible and digestible for a broad audience. And to ensure that those words, because we know how much words matter, are used in ways that move us toward freedom. Amazing. So, again, look, you're doing such important work. And um, thank you again for sitting and taking the time out of your day to speak with me about your amazing book. Um, And I hope to see you again as far as like future work. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me.